there is grandeur in this view of life. Welcome to Evolution Talk with Rick Coast, an introduction to the oldest story ever told. One night a very long time ago, millions of years ago in fact, there lived a young hominid named Chaka. Chaka was alone on this night. His parents were asleep and he was looking for something. He'd heard a noise, and there were a lot of noises at night, but this one had sounded close, perhaps too close. He sniffed around and suddenly froze. Chaka had seen snakes before. His family always gave them a wide berth. This one was big, bigger than any snake he had ever seen before. He didn't dare call out to his folks. This snake was looking right at him. And then it struck. In case you were wondering, Chaka did survive, and he went on to live a long, somewhat famous life. But he was outlived by his fear. A fear that had been passed on to him and which he, in turn, passed on to his children and on down the line. I'm of course talking about a fear of snakes or pretty much anything which slithers low to the ground on its belly. I grew up in New England, I still live in New England, and the snakes we usually run into are of the common garter variety, nothing too terrifying. When I was a kid, I lifted up a piece of old plywood and I found a milk snake curled up beneath it. I thought it was a coral snake and I assumed I was going to die, so I ran. I didn't know that coral snakes didn't live in my part of the country. And even today, when I unexpectedly run into a snake, there's a little part of me that still jumps. My pulse quickens. I might pick it up now and move it to a safer location away from my lawnmower, but that uneasy feeling is still there. And I can't explain it. Chaka could. If he was still alive, he might nod and tell me that snakes are dangerous and that knowledge has been passed down to me. Not verbally, but genetically. My brain has been pre-wired to fear snakes. Now, is that true? In the 17th century, philosopher John Locke explained that we were all born with a blank slate. A tabula rasa. Everything we learn, we learn by experience. We are not pre-programmed for anything, least of all, the fear of snakes. The assumption, implicit assumption, is that humans start out life uh, in essence with the blank slate and that all the content of human character and behavior is put in there through socialization, through culture, uh, poured in there during the lifetime of an individual. That's professor of psychology David Buss. He's describing what many people feel. But if we were to sit down and talk with him, he might tell a different story. One in which we aren't born with an empty hard drive, but one with a bunch of tiny little programs bundled along with it. These programs are coded to run at certain times, to help us navigate the world. 
recognizing and understanding how these programs work could just be the key to understanding how we work, or more specifically, our minds, behaviors, and fears. Enter the world of evolutionary psychology. Darwin himself was adamant that his theory applied not just to bodies, but also to uh, emotions and perceptions and behavior. Via the brain, of course, which is a part of the body. And by shaping the brain, the uh, evolution can ultimately shape what we think, what we feel, and, and how we act. That's psychologist Steven Pinker talking about evolutionary psychology. And it's true. Darwin did ponder the idea that everything about us is a product of natural selection. Our attitudes, our emotions, they're all handed down to us by way of our internal wiring and not by experience, at least not completely. Experience has taught me not to run when I see a snake. Of course, when it's a milk snake and not a coral snake. If it's a coral snake, then I need to run. But my Fear Snakes program is still running. It might be outdated software, but it still serves a purpose should I ever encounter a coral snake. Yet I don't feel the same way when I get into a car or hold a gun. I might respect the power of the car's engine or the ability for me to do harm with a gun, but I'm not afraid when I encounter them. And I encounter cars and guns a lot more frequently than I do snakes. And I've known people who have been seriously injured by both. Just turn on the news pretty much any day and you'll hear about a car accident or someone being shot. It would make a lot more sense for my pulse to quicken when I get into a car than when I see a snake. So what gives? Darwin led people to think that many of the uh, emotions and drives that keep, get us going are, uh, can be explained as um, evolutionary adaptations, that is, things that, compared to their alternatives, increase the number of surviving offspring. And that's what evolutionary psychology seeks to explain. The question it asks is why we feel the way we do in certain situations. What psychological adaptations were naturally selected to accompany us on our journey forward through time? We have eyes that are sensitive to shades of light, ears that are stimulated by vibrations in the air, and the nerves on our skin help us feel the world around us. These are adaptive traits that we evolved with. Natural selection saw to that. Every living organism on this planet, be it plant or animal, was molded into the shape it is for a reason. Not a conscious designed reason, but a reason dictated by the organism's ability to survive and reproduce. If an adaptation or a mutation wasn't beneficial, then the organism disappeared. And when I jump at a sudden shadow or feel a sense of dread when I'm alone in the woods at night, those feelings may also be present because of an adaptive trait. Or at the very least, my fears may be linked to genes which were selected to remain a part of me. It doesn't stop at fears either. Evolutionary psychology wants to know why people cheat on their spouses, why we lie, and also why we stop to help someone who is hurt. These are all open for explanation and interpretation. Look at it this way. Your mind is not much different than a computer. It receives data, it receives input, it analyzes it, and it provides a response. Different parts of your brain handle different bits of sensory data. They have different functions. The physical configuration of your brain is the product of natural selection. The cognitive processes going on within that configuration are part of the selection process. 
The genes that make up that physical configuration were selected because they allowed for our survival. Our brains contain a history of physical and psychological adaptations. Just like an archaeologist digs into the sands of time to piece together the physical world, it may be possible to do the same for the psychological world. Our society abhors incest, but why? I'm sure you can come up with a multitude of reasons, but other than saying it's gross or unnatural, what's the real reason? Why are we psychologically averse to the idea? And that aversion is a part of us. We may try to put it into words, but the fact of the matter is we all have this aversion. We aren't taught it. Our culture didn't tell us it was bad. It's just there, like laughter. A few episodes ago, we looked at laughter. Laughter evolved with us too. Our ancient ancestors used an early form of laughter to indicate that they weren't being aggressive. It helped to avoid conflict. And baby chimps laugh, orangutans laugh, even mice laugh. It is all part of a psychological makeup that was there when we were born. Locke's blank slate isn't so blank after all. Our minds are handed to us already bundled with basic and essential software. Everything else, our wants, desires, and certain reactions, can be looked at as programs we picked up along the way. Our differences can be attributed to the different programs we've installed from the moment of birth to right now. Traditional psychology asks how it is that we function the way we do. Evolutionary psychology asks why. It also looks at the brain as an information processing device, one that was shaped by natural selection to handle inputs and outputs the way that it does. The neural mechanisms and pathways that are activated at any given moment are solving problems. And some of those problems, or better put, some of the solutions to those problems evolved with us. These are the very same problems our ancient ancestors faced. They don't have to be big problems either. When you have an itch on your nose, you just scratch it. You don't consciously think about it. Your hand is raised and your fingers attend to the itch. There's a complicated set of processes that go on to perform this act and not one of them are you consciously aware of or directing. You're not thinking about how to raise your hand or how to scratch the itch. Unconscious processes do this for you. You are aware of it, but get this, you're aware of it milliseconds after the fact. In a 1992 paper, neurophysiologist John Eccles looked at the evolution of consciousness. That, by the way, was also the title of the paper. In it, he asked how far back in our evolutionary past can we trace consciousness? Does it extend as far back as our reptilian ancestors? Are we still running some of the same unconscious programs for social interaction that, that they did? We've inherited certain structures of our brain from them. Contained within those structures are stimulus and response programs that still work now, just as they did then. Like our amygdala, that's been with us for a very long time. It handles our flight or fight response, when I see a snake, I, I'll retreat. When someone comes at me from a dark alley, I might defend myself. I don't think about these things, I, I'll just react. And the source of that reaction, the shortcut to the response which avoids having to think about it, lies in an ancient, still-running program. A program which could be two million years old. Our brains are physical systems. 
And could it really be that our responses, decisions, and attitudes are all directly tied to a physical set of neural circuits and nothing more? The mind is a product of the activity of the brain, and the brain is, the brain is an organ. It's got uh, an evolutionary history, all of the parts in the human brain you can find in the brain of uh, chimpanzee and other uh, mammals. Uh, and we also know that the brain is not just a, a random neural network. And we have reason to believe that a lot of the products of the brain, our perception, our emotions, our language, our ways of thinking, uh, are strategies for negotiating the world, uh, surviving, bringing up children, finding mates, negotiating relationships. It's not exactly a pleasant thought, is it? That everything we do, our minds, our thoughts, our reactions, are all a set of programs. Programs which were installed two million years ago. Along the way, these programs have been changed depending on the environment we found ourselves in. It goes back to the age-old question, nature versus nurture. How much of what we do is the product of nature, or in this case, natural selection, as opposed to the culture we are born into, with all of its social nuances and rules? It's very likely a mixture of both. The percentage in the mix is up for debate. One theory called dual inheritance theory, or DIT, was developed to help define this mixture. According to DIT, our behavior is a mix of genetic and cultural evolution. It's the perfect middle ground. It's up to evolutionary psychologists to decide where they fall on the playing field, with DIT being the dividing line. But there's another dividing line, one which separates evolutionary psychology as a whole from, well, everyone else. Evolutionary psychology is one of these uh, equal opportunity offenders. Uh, I think that one aspect of it is that people like to think that there is a, a wall between uh, evolutionary theory as it applies to non-human organisms and as it applies to humans, and people don't want to cross that wall. That's Professor of Psychology David Buss again. When we think about animal actions, we often attribute them to instinct. With some exceptions, like dogs, dolphins, or primates, we have no problem with science telling us that non-human animals operate by way of biological programs or mechanisms. Birds fly south in the winter, and they don't think about it, they just do it. It's a migratory reflex. They're following an ancient program that works in tandem with their biology and the Earth's magnetic fields, like software and a computer. But apply this same logic to our actions, and many people will cry foul. Critics of evolutionary psychology have also pointed out a number of things that they find wrong with the theory, or at least our ability to properly classify it as a science. For one, it's hard to test. I opened this show with a story about Chaka the ancient hominid and his fear of snakes, a fear which I also said was inherited or was inherent in his genes his internal programming, and which was passed on down to us. A seemingly irrational fear with a seemingly rational explanation. But how do I test that? Or to be more specific from a scientific point of view, how can my theory of Chaka and his fear snake gene be falsified? Is it just a story? And this leads us to the evolutionary psychologist's biggest stumbling block the criticism that their theories and conclusions are all just so stories. Like Rudyard Kipling's book published in 1902, 
where he fantasized about things like why camels have humps or how a leopard got its spots. Think of giraffe, said the Ethiopian, or if you prefer stripes, think of zebra. They find their spots and stripes give them per feet satisfaction. Um, said the leopard, I wouldn't look like zebra, not for ever so. Well, make up your mind, said the Ethiopian, because I'd hate to go hunting without you, but I must if you insist on looking like a sunflower against a tarred fence. I'll take spots then, said Leopard, but don't make them too vulgar big. I wouldn't look like giraffe, not for ever so. I'll make them with the tips of my fingers, said the Ethiopian. There's plenty of black left on my skin still. Stand over. Then the Ethiopian put his five fingers close together. There was plenty of black left on his new skin still, and he pressed them all over the leopard, and wherever the five fingers touched, they left five little black marks, all close together. You can see them on any leopard skin you like, best beloved. Sometimes the fingers slipped and the marks got a little blurred, but if you look closely at any leopard now, you will see that there are always five spots of five fat black fingertips. Perhaps all of this talk about our behavior being linked to our genes and our examples are simply cases of scientific justification based on speculation. The brain is an incredibly adaptive and flexible organ. There are many cases of brain injuries where one part is damaged only to have another part rewire itself to accommodate or fill in for the damaged area and the functions that were affected. If certain areas of our brains are tied to certain behavioral traits due to natural selection, then how is it that those traits can be passed on to different areas of the brain under extreme circumstances, like a brain injury? Could it be that John Locke was right, and it's not genetic programming that accounts for our behaviors, but is instead due to experience? Locke would say that natural selection provides the hard drive, an empty one fresh out of the factory, and it's then up to us to fill it. what do I think? I think it's a little bit of both. Our hard drives are full of programs that run beneath the surface, programs that we are unaware of in our day-to-day lives. They help us to interact with and to navigate the world. They also help us to recognize a dangerous situation from a friendly one. But there is some space set aside for new experiences. Things our ancient genes never encountered when they began to program our hard drives. Things like planes, trains, automobiles, or how to greet someone from a culture completely different from our own. Those experiences become part of our own personal programs. They're not passed down, and they are unique to who we are. Until the power runs out. Behind my home sits a very small 200-year-old cemetery. I keep the weeds at bay and make sure that the stones are clear of fallen branches after a a bad storm passes by. It's a part of the past that I like to take care of. They were here long before I was born. The cemetery sits no more than about 100 feet from my back deck. Every once in a while, late at night, when I'm writing or reading, I'll catch movement out of the corner of my eye. I'll look, and there's nothing there. Is it a ghost from the cemetery? or a hyperactive agent detection device gifted to me by my genes. I guess it depends on if you're a fan of scary stories.
Evolution Talk is written and produced by myself, Rick Coast. The music on this episode was composed and performed by Poddington Bear. You can help the show end its existence by leaving a comment and a rating. Your support is greatly appreciated and it will help the show grow. And as always, you can reach me by using the site's contact page at evolutiontalk.com and also on Twitter at Rick Coast. And most of all, thank you for listening. And until next time, please take care of yourself. Evolution Talk is a Rick Coast production.